context of Hanukkah. Those who start with the uh, historical context of Hanukkah very often have an agenda. Uh, and they're all different kinds of agendas. It's an interesting study, not for now, to see how different people uh, emphasize different aspects, aspects of, uh, of Hanukkah. What I'm going to try to do, and as best as I possibly can, A, not being a historian, and B, uh, not being able to disguise my own uh, biases. Uh, objectivity is, uh, is not completely possible. But we're going to try to put the Hanukkah story in historical perspective and, how should we say, let the chips fall where they may. Uh, you, you might come out, uh, unless you know a lot of its history already, you might come out a little disillusioned uh, if you can handle that then, uh, then uh, I'm your guy. All right. So, of course, Hanukkah is the encounter between the Jewish people and, and Greece. But before Greece, let's say just a few brief words uh, about the two uh, conquests, the two empires that conquered Israel and the Jewish people before, uh, before Greece. <clears throat> the first one being Babel, Babylon which uh, ultimately uh, resulted in the destruction of the first Beit HaMikdash in 586 BCE. Uh, and not only the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash, but the exile of the overwhelming majority of the Jewish people from Israel to Babylon. Babylon, by the way, is modern day Iraq. Iraq. Um, so, Without going into a lot of detail, because there's a great deal uh, to, be, to be said about this, uh, there's one word I want to emphasize when it comes to the Babylonian con conquest, and that's uprooting. Uprooting. The Babylonian uh, policy when it came to conquering peoples, especially peoples that rebelled against them, and that included us, uh, unfortunately, at a certain point we rebelled uh, against Babylon, was to uproot the population, to take the population and move them somewhere else, and then move other peoples from other parts of the empire uh, in their place, move people around so that, <clears throat> so that people uh, would be disoriented, uh, so that people would not, uh, would not start an, an uprising. There's a lot to be said about that, but we don't have time. Uh, Babylon was conquered by Persia, uh, actually a, uh, a uh, Federation between Persia and Media, Paras and Madai. Um, and uh, that was under Cyrus the Great, Koresh, as he's called in the, in the Tanakh. And again, I can only summarize it in, in, in one word. Uh, the Persian uh, policy of conquest, unlike the Babylonian, was returned. Policy was returned. In other words, uh, Persia took over the Babylonian Empire because they conquered the Babylonians. And they took over the entire empire uh, at its height. And we know this from the Purim story, uh, which happened before the Hanukkah story. Even though Purim happens later in the calendar year, it happened historically earlier. We know from the Purim story that the Persian Empire extended from Mehodubad Kush, from India until Ethiopia. It's a very, very large territory. And the Persian policy was, we will allow you to return to your ancestral homeland and that applied to us, but applied to other peoples, other conquered peoples as well, within the empire. You just have to remain loyal to us. Then you have to pay taxes, and if you need soldiers, you send us soldiers, uh, but you go back. 
I, I don't know if it was out of benevolence uh, per se, or whether it was just uh, a reasonable way of dealing with the fact that it's very hard to control people that are, uh, that are angry. Uh, but if they are less angry, then, uh, then uh, you might want, then they, they might not cause uh, trouble. So that's Persian. Greece, on the other hand, uh, if I had to summarize the, and the Greeks conquered the Persians, we'll go over that in a little bit greater detail. Uh, but the Greek policy of conquest uh, was, again, in one word, colonization, colonized. Let me explain. Uh, Greece uh, was, a, uh, was an old uh, civilization. And within Greek civilization, within Hel Hellenic or Hellenistic civilization, a number of important ideas were uh, developed. The Greek islands themselves were not totally unified. Uh, each uh, one of the Greek islands or one of the Greek city-states uh, ran its own affairs. Uh, you probably know from history that there is a great difference between, let's say, Athens and Sparta. Very great differences between, between them. But among the ideas that they had in common, and this was an ideology, was, um, well, essentially two things. Hellenistic thought, Hellenistic culture uh, emphasized primarily two things. One a desire to know the truth of things as they are. Find out the truth. That's the basis of uh, scientific exploration, uh, and, but using the tools that we have at, at our disposal. Use the desire to know the truth of things as they are. Now, how do you find out those things? If you're not getting some kind of divine uh, message, well, you use what human beings have at their disposal. You use uh, reason and use logic and use uh, sense perception. Uh, and uh, you use that in order to figure out what is the truth, uh, the truth about, uh, about science, the truth about uh, the best political system, the best economic system, the truth about what is aesthetics, what is beauty, uh, et cetera. That's one important concept in Hellenistic society. Uh, the other is a desire to harmonize life. Uh, you might be familiar with the expression, uh, a sound mind in a sound body, that's Greek. Uh, the person who is credited with that is a gentleman by the name of Thales, who lived before Socrates. And that's, uh, that's the idea, uh, that it's not just to emphasize the body and not just to emphasize the mind, mind, the spirit, uh, the imagination, etc., but to harmonize uh, both of these. When, uh, when Greece became more and more powerful uh, as a conquering uh, entity, it regarded it as an uh, opportunity to bring these ideas, we would call them modernization, modernity, uh, to bring this to other cultures. But, and I can't emphasize this enough, the Greeks never, with the one exception of us, Hanukkah story, never forced Hellenism on anybody. They didn't force it on anybody. How did they do it? I said earlier, colonization. What they would do is uh, in areas that came under their control, and the control was done through military means, you know, conquest and so on, pay your taxes, obey the laws, everybody will be, everybody will be fine. Within the conquered areas, if there were people who were interested, it was always kind of voluntary, 
uh, democratic, if you like, let's not forget that democracy also originates from, uh, from Greece. If the local population was interested, then uh, the, uh, the Greeks would set up uh, a colony, what's called a polis, which is a city, but it's kind of a model city. And who would live in that model city? Uh, people who were, we would call them shlichim, uh, uh, emissaries uh, that exemplified this Greek way of life and Greek ideology, and they were there to be observed. There were all sorts of incentives to want to become a member of that polis. Uh, the incentives included economic incentives. If you if you became a citizen, then uh, of the city, uh, then you had kind of tax breaks and opportunity for trade and so on and so forth. So there are a lot of incentives, but it wasn't forced. The polis was set up as a model. And within that model, there were a number of institutions. Um, among the institutions, for example, is the gymnasium. The gymnasium, I mean, we use the word gymnasium for place to exercise, excuse me. But if you know any Greek, I don't know much, but I don't really know any. Gymno, anybody know what gymno is? Gym. But what is it? the gymnasium? Gymno means naked because a sound mind and a sound body could be celebrated uh, in a public display of athletic performances, uh, athletic activities, um, so that the sound mind, which has to be developed, could be developed and displayed in a sound body. And the body is not, from a Greek perspective, is not something to be ashamed of. Shame, they would regard as a kind of a primitive, barbaric uh, way of looking at things. The body should be celebrated. And therefore, the ideal, again, not forced, but the ideal was that these uh, athletic activities were done in the nude. Uh, now, nobody was forced to do it in the nude if somebody felt a little uncomfortable, if their culture, their background, whatever, uh, uh, made them feel uncomfortable about that, they could wear a loincloth, but it was definitely, you know, talk about peer pressure, it was definitely held up as uh, a model to do so in the nude, because as I said, the body is not something to, uh, to be ashamed of. So the gymnasium was set up, and uh, a local politi political system was, uh, was set up, democracy was considered uh, an, an ideal, and wherever the Greek empire expanded, these model cities uh, became, uh, became a permanent part of that, uh, of that city and local people were encouraged. Hellenism is, may have originated in Greece, but it wasn't necessarily connected to Greek peoplehood or ethnicity. It was a new concept. It was a concept that one could adopt an ideology, what in later history is called a religion, but adopt an ideology no matter where you came from, no matter where you came from, which brings us to Alexander the Great. Alexander uh, III was from Macedonia. Um, he was born in 356. Uh, he was the son of the king of Macedonia, uh, Philip II. Um, and Alexander was raised from a very, very young age uh, to be a successor to his father, to be the king, and to really exemplify uh, what Hellenistic thought uh, would regard as a model king. Uh, 
who would be you know, cultured and so on. By the way, uh, you know who was Alexander the Great's tutor when he was a... You're close. Aristotle. Aristotle. Aristotle, that Aristotle was his tutor. Um, and, uh, and so Alexander was, was groomed for this, for this role. And the idea was that if Alexander could become a great uh, empire builder, then wherever the empire would go would be more and more opportunity. Again, not force. More and more opportunity for more and more cultures to, uh, to, to see and maybe they want uh, buy in to this uh, to this whole to this whole system. Alexander, uh, by the age of sixteen, commanded an army. Sixteen, and by the age of twenty-one, he was the king. Uh, he was the king of the Hellenes. A number of years ago, uh, we had a student here uh, from uh, from uh, Greece, and I said, "Well, Alexander wasn't Greek. He was from Macedonia." And she got very upset with me. That has to do with modern day politics. We won't get into it right now. But the point to make is you didn't have to have been born in Greece or to have Greek ancestry to be a Hellenist. It was a matter of ideology. And that's really what was important. So Alexander expands the territory uh, and that included this tiny little corner of uh, the world. By this, by this time, the only place that we could call you know, the land of Israel was really Judea, Yehuda, very small area. Um, and uh, in the year 332, again, BCE, that's why we're counting backwards, uh, he takes uh, Yehuda on the way to Egypt. He did so without any resistance. There was no, there was no military resistance. It would have been foolish for the Jewish people uh, to, to resist uh, him. Um, there is a recorded meeting between Alexander the Great, it's recorded in the Gemara, uh, a recorded meeting between Alexander the Great and the Kohen Gadol at the time, who's known as Shimon HaTzadik. Um, and uh, the way that the, uh, the Gemara describes it uh, is that it's, uh, it's, it's peaceful. Uh, essentially, the Jewish people were, were welcoming him. Uh, again, it would have been foolish to resist, but also because uh, the way things were, the Greeks did not, the Hellenists may have uh, presented Hellenism as an ideal, uh, but it was not forced. It was not forced. And the truth is that for a very long time, there was a, a certain amount of mutual respect. Now, I don't know all the details that you uh, went through in the Shi'ur just before this about, uh, about uh, Hellenism uh, and, uh, and Judaism. So many, many of the things that I'm, I might point out here might be, uh, might be a repeat. But there was uh, a kind of admiration or an acceptance of the two systems for the two cultures for each other. Uh, first of all, the Greeks were interested in all kinds of cultures, just from what you might call a, an anthropological point of view. They were, they were interested in uh, various cultures and they had a great respect for those cultures such as ours that had a system of law, especially a system of law that was written down. That was a big deal. That showed a certain uh, uh, pro progress. Uh, we have a system of law that was written down talking about the Torah at this time. Uh, Torah Shabal Peh wasn't written down, but it, it was based on a kind of a written constitution. The Greeks could, uh, could respect that. Uh, the Greeks regarded the laws of uh, Judaism uh, as being essentially man-centered. That's not exactly accurate, but okay. Uh, most of the laws have to do with how to run society and how to deal with uh, you know, theft and, uh, and the like. 
the, the Greeks could, um, could respect that. They also respected the fact that in Judaism, education is very highly uh, valued, and that's something that the Greeks uh, uh, respected as well. Um, on the other hand, um, the, uh, the Greeks had some problems with Judaism, which without forcing it, they also made it very clear that uh, Jewish society is still kind of primitive. Uh, some of the things that the, the Greeks uh, had problems with are things that they might regard as superstitions. For example, I'll give you a couple examples. Shabbat. Um, they encountered on their conquests a number of societies, a number of cultures that had like a day when it would anger the gods to, to work. So the, uh, the Greeks looked upon the Jewish institution of Shabbat and they thought it was something like that, that working on Shabbat was, uh, was some kind of a taboo uh, and that didn't seem uh, very progressive or very, uh, very reasonable. Um, also, uh, the special diet that Jews had, as far as the Greeks were concerned, they understood any society that had, had any kind of uh, dietary restrictions as not being based on science, not being based on health or, or, or that, but it usually was based on various types of taboos. And that's the way they read our, uh, our dietary restrictions Kashrut, as well. And uh, circumcision, oh boy, did, uh, the Greeks uh, made it very, very clear that that was, uh, that that was uh, not in keeping with, with progress because a sound mind and a sound body uh, means that you develop the body, you celebrate the body, but you certainly don't mutilate the body, which is the way that the Greeks looked upon uh, circumcision. You don't mutilate the body. You don't perform an operation unless there's a medical need for it. Uh, and uh, therefore, they regarded Mila also as being uh, barbaric, uh, backward, uh, superstitious. Uh, so they admired many, certain aspects of, uh, of Jewish society, uh, but they made no secret of the fact that they regarded certain aspects of Jewish society as being what we would call old-fashioned. And the Greeks uh, and uh, Hellenistic ideology, Hellenistic society, that was the wave of the future. It was modernity. Uh, it, was, uh, it was democracy. It was scientific method. I know it's not modern scientific method. There are a lot of things that were long proved a long time ago within, within the science of, let's say, Aristotle is being inaccurate. But at least it was devoted to the idea of, uh, of science. It was devoted to uh, a, a decent educational system and a decent uh, political system and economic system and, and, and so on and so forth. Um, I mentioned Aristotle before. Um, Aristotle, uh, belief is, is not quite the right word. Uh, it's more like was convinced, proved that, there, uh, that God exists and that there is only one God, Aristotle, uh, using his own method, using the, uh, uh, the, the, the method of, of, of reason and uh, of logic. Uh, he disagreed uh, with the idea of God as creator and the idea of, of miracle, but he went, uh, he went pretty far and he, he encountered in the Jewish people, uh, or the Greeks encountered in the Jewish people, similar ideas. Back to Alexander. Alexander uh, was expanding the territory and uh, he very unexpectedly, and at a very young age, in the year 323, uh, took sick and died in Babylon. And uh, the Alexandrian Greek uh, empire was kind of thrown into uh, disarray uh, for a period of time uh, because it wasn't clear who should be his successor. 
Uh, and after about 20 years, uh, it settled down that his empire was going to be uh, carved up into three uh, different spheres, only two of which uh, concern us. Um, one sphere was based in Egypt and it was uh, ruled over by one, oh, who ruled them? He didn't have uh, heirs. So who ruled the empire afterwards were his generals. Uh, so in Egypt, it was ruled by a fellow named Ptolemy with a silent P at the beginning, P-T-O-L-E-M-Y. Um, and that's the Ptolemaic division of the Greek empire, also might be called the Egyptian Greek empire, the Egyptian part of what once was the Greek empire. That's Ptolemy. Um, and, in, uh, uh, and then in Syria uh, was based a gentleman by the name of Seleucus, uh, and that's the Seleucid uh, Empire, or the, the, the Syrian part of the Greek Empire. If you've ever heard uh, the Syrian Greeks, that seems like, like a weird expression. It only means the Syrian part of what was once the big Alexandrian Greek Empire. And uh, there's a third empire kind of based in Europe, but that's not of concern to us. And where was little Judea? Kind of caught in the middle uh, between, uh, between those two. And they were constantly fighting with each other. The Ptolemaic Empire and the Seleucid uh, Empire were constantly fighting over other, uh, with each other over control. But for the first 100 years after the death of, uh, uh, after the establishment of these uh, empires, uh, the uh, Judea was in the Ptolemaic, the Egyptian sphere. Now, what happened in, in, in Judea, I want to say Israel, Judea at, at that time? Um, the Jews kind of kept out of things. Uh, they were allowed to run their own lives. They didn't have political autonomy. They were under the, under the Greeks, under the, uh, the Egyptian Greeks, under the Ptolemies. <clears throat> but uh, for the most part, you know, they paid their taxes and they, and they observed the laws and things were, were fine. Uh, but uh, it was uh, Hellenism uh, made its inroads voluntarily. Uh, who do you think, uh, what segment of society would be first interested in, uh, in this kind of wave of the future, any kind of wave of the future? The upper class. The upper class, the rich, and the Kohanim, Kohanim, uh, in in particular. So just to give you an idea of the advancing of Hellenism um, under Ptolemy II, uh, uh, also known as Philadelphus, somewhere around the year 280, 250, he uh, was organizing a library, a library of all of the literature, all of the works of culture uh, within the uh, the empire. And uh, because they were interested in various civilizations, and of course they wanted to present Greek civilization as, uh, as superior, uh, but all of these works uh, were to be translated into Greek, the universal language. So we are told, and there's a source like this in the Gemara, there are sources uh, elsewhere as well that, uh, that, that tell the same story the same way, that Ptolemy II uh, wanted to have the Torah translated into Greek. Uh, the way the Gemara tells it is uh, very, uh, very telling uh, because he, what he did was, through his emissaries, he approached 70 uh, uh, scholars uh, of the Jewish people and said, write for me the Torah of your teacher, Moshe. Now, 
that's very, very telling. Write for me, meaning translate for me. But the way you referred to the Torah, the, the Torah, the teaching of your, uh, of your uh, teacher, Moshe, uh, is, from, is a very Greek perspective. Because, especially uh, in the view of Aristotle, law, per se, is of no concern to God. Aristotle's conception of God is God exists, God brings, a, brings about change in the physical world without miracles, like make things happen within the laws of nature. But law, in other words, the way human beings lead their lives is of no concern to, uh, to, to God. Um, that's why when they referred to the Torah, they called it nomos, which is the law. And if you've ever heard uh, the Torah referred to as the law, that kind of comes from, from Greece, uh, from the Greek conception. Um, so uh, the way the Gemara tells the story, uh, they, the 70 elders were placed in 70 separate rooms, and miraculously, they produced 70, all 70 of them produced identical translations of the Torah into Greek. And that translation is known as the Septuagint, which means 70. Targum Hashivim, it's called uh, in Hebrew. Aside from the miraculous aspect of it, and the fact that the Gemara says that in principle, a Sefer Torah written in Greek could be used for Kriyat Torah. But aside from that, it shows you that by that time, there were Jewish scholars uh, who were not only knowledgeable, of course, in the Torah, but also were knowledgeable enough to, in Greek to be able to, to translate. Um, at a certain point, the, uh, the, the shifting of the, uh, of the borders uh, came about so that uh, around the uh, about the year 200, 200 again BCE, uh, Israel, Palestine, Eretz Yisrael, Yehuda comes within the Syrian uh, sphere. There, as far as Hellenism is concerned, there really is no big difference. Um, what is happening within Jewish society is more and more of an interest in uh, in exemplifying. Uh, these modern uh, ideas. Um, and these modern ideas are, are having an influence, like I said, on the upper echelons of society. The wealthy, the connected, the Kohanim, uh, etc. We're going to talk about the Kohanim in, in particular. Um, now, there are some, there are some problems uh, from a Jewish uh, perspective. On the one hand, these are people who want to be like everybody else. They want to be modern. Who wants to be backward when the world is progressing? Progressing in a technological way, in a political way, in an economic way. Who wants to be uh, uh, behind? And if the Greeks are right, maybe certain Jewish practices are barbaric. I mean, that's the way certain Jews were, were beginning to think. So I will use the example of the gymnasium and Brit Mila. As I said earlier, the gymnasium, uh, the ideal was to, uh, was to perform the athletics in the nude. Uh, and any, but like I said earlier, uh, uh, you know, uh, peer pressure would be such that it might be hard to, uh, to, resist, uh, to resist that. But never, nevertheless, there were Jews um, who were thinking, uh, se having second thoughts, about giving a brit milah to their, to their boys, because maybe it is barbaric. And those who had been circumcised when they were young and wanted to be like everybody else and wanted to participate uh, in, the, in the nude, uh, 
subjected themselves to uh, an operation called epispasm, E-P-I-S-P-A-S-M. Uh, if you're interested, you can Google it, but it is an operation that is reportedly rather dangerous and also very painful to make it look as if the man had never been circumcised. I'll just leave it at that. Uh, but aside from the, the, the pain and, the, and, the, and so on, um, just, 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 just think of, of what it means on a, on a let's say on a, on a social, sociological, uh, ideological level. Um, it's basically like being ashamed of one's Judaism. And if one is to extrapolate from the Hanukkah story to later times in Jewish history, it's a story that repeats itself when Jews uh, want to be want to be part of the modern world, whatever that may be, but wonder whether too Jewish, you know. So I, I and you can think of all of the examples you want, but let's stick with uh, let's stick with the with the history. Now, the people who were most in favor of bringing about these changes, of course were the upper uh, echelons of society, especially the Kohanim. Uh, it's true that ultimately uh, the heroes of the Hanukkah story are Kohanim, but the also the, I don't want to say the villains, but the people who were involved in the Hityavnut, the Hellenization, Mityavnim. That's Hitpael. Grammar fans from the word Yavan Greek. So to make oneself Greek, the Mityavnim, the, the people who were in the forefront of that were Kohanim. Yes. Not necessarily. Like, so you could be a Kohanim, but just like not That's possible. It, it might have been more difficult because Kohanim were not allowed to, uh, to uh, cultivate land. They were supported by the people. So there was a, a great advantage to working and also great prestige, of course. And nobody else but a Kohen could serve in the Beit HaMikdash and bring the sacrifices. This is like, I guess I'm getting a little caught up on like how if a Kohen is in the Beit HaMikdash all day every day during the Shem, like where even is that entry of Greek philosophy? Like uh, the only entry point would be if they're not in the They're Bible. not in there all day, every day. You got to go to the bathhouse, okay. and the bathhouse is an important social uh, okay. social place. And you go to the gymnasium. Okay. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's right. Right. And there were Kohanim, especially Kohanim Gidolim, who, um, who vied with each other to be more progressive. For example, we have uh, a Kohen Gadol, uh, his Hebrew name was Yahushua, but he's known mostly by his Greek name, Jason. Um, <laughs> Jason is a Greek name. I know it's a very popular name among Jews, but it's originally Greek. Uh, say whatever you like about that. Uh, so he was considered a moderate reformer. Uh, and by the way, I'm using the word reform because historians use the word reform. I'm not talking about the the modern reform movement. You can find whether parallels you like, but the people who wanted to move the progress towards more and more Hellenization, uh, historians refer to them as reformers. So uh, what this uh, Jason did was he offered money to Antiochus, 
uh, who was uh, uh, of the time, uh, Antiochus IV. Antiochus IV, uh, he's the Antiochus of the Hanukkah story, and he offered him money in order to be installed as the Kohen Gadol, because of somebody else who's more traditional, more old-fashioned, uh, whatever word you want to use, um, and, uh, and he was, um, and Jason was installed. And then there was a struggle between this guy, Jason, and uh, somebody else uh, who was a more radical reformer. His name was Menelaus, Greek name. Uh, and whoever paid more money to the king uh, would, be, uh, would be installed. Uh, Wait, sorry, as the Kohen Gadol. Why, why did the Greeks, why were they in charge? Because they were the government. They were the government. The the uh, all of the Jewish internal Jewish institutions were there by the grace of the Greek government. But they still they didn't like um, they still took part in the politics of of like the within politics. So yes. Was, yeah. Right. But these but these uh, uh, these Kohanim, especially Menelaus, were trying to push for the Beta Mikdash itself to be run along what you might call more universalistic ideas. Uh, and universalistic practices. Uh, they they started to refer to uh, to God, for example, by the a Greek word that means you know the Lord of the of the heavens, which is kind of a universalistic way of talking about God. I saw some more hands up. Yes. So I thought that this were like the only Greeks, like by the Greeks, they were also willing to do a lot of things and do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just to give you a, a this is a what's, what's the word uh, a um, an opinion uh, an editorial okay the Hanukkah story is, is preceded not only is preceded primarily by Jews wanting to be more like Hellenists and it's not it was never a question of whether or not. It's very hard in, in any modern society to resist when the, when the world is moving towards, let's say, technological advances. It's very, very hard to resist. So it's not really a question of whether or not to be modern. It's a question of where do you draw the line between, as I would like to put it, fitting in and selling out. And that really was the, the backdrop to, uh, to all of this. Uh, some hands. Yes. They had access to money. Exactly. But they had access to the, the big treasuries where it was in the Beit HaMikdash. People donated money uh, and the Kohanim made decisions about how that money is to be is to be used, whether or not they were personally wealthy, although they were, if they knew what they were doing, they could be wealthy as well. Sure. Let's say. Let's say, unless we have evidence otherwise, but uh, they had access to uh, to all kinds of money, and people would would give them donations. Well, we're now up to we're now up to the the, the Seleucid period, uh, so around the year two hundred, and where uh, and Antiochus the fourth becomes uh, becomes the the head of the Seleucid dynasty in one seventy six. Yeah, this on the time timeline. Yeah. Okay, so let's let's talk about that right away as soon as uh, questions. Yes. Ah. Uh, not only that, not only that, that it was not so bad to us, but in appreciation for everything that Alexander was for the Jewish people, was very benevolent. 
There are all sorts of stories in the Gemara about Alexander talking to the Chachamim of the time, and they had very pr productive, uh, interesting intellectual discussions. Because of that, uh, uh, supposedly, uh, reportedly, all the boys that were born within one year were named Alexander or something like that. It became a Jewish name, Alexander, in various versions of it, you know, Sender, uh, etc. Yeah, became a Jewish, uh, became a Jewish name. Let's not forget, Esther is not Hebrew. Esther is Persian. Esther's Hebrew name was Hadassah. Anyway. So the significance of Jason, the high priest, was that he was a reformer? On that, like, he, he, was a, he was a moderate reformer. And Menelaus, who managed to give even more money, was a more radical reformer. Okay. And the changes in the Beit HaMikdash were done first by these Kohanim, by these very uh, Hellenized uh, Kohanim. Now, where does where does uh, where do the uh, the, uh, the the laws come in? So, Antiochus the Fourth, at a certain point, institutes certain laws that you might say pushed advanced uh, Hellenism in a in a forceful way, uh, and uh, and the question is, why did he do it? Uh, and nobody's really sure. There are all kinds of opinions, uh, including the fact that he was a kind of a peculiar person. He may have had anti-Semitic um, uh, advisors. It's very possible that the Jews, the, the Hellenized Jews, the Kohanim, uh, were, uh, had his ear. Uh, also, he had a problem with the Jews. There was a point in uh, one of his campaigns where he was, where he was withdrawing uh, and he withdrawing and he withdrew through Judea like he used us as a, as a road and the Jews revolted uh, at the time and uh, he was always angry at them then when he needed money uh, he uh, he went he sent emissaries to the Beit HaMikdash to clear out the treasuries and the Jews revolted and they and they rioted so he had various problems with the Jews but uh, I, I think uh, that that uh, had not there been Jewish leaders Kohanim who were pushing for these changes, uh, who knows whether he actually would have done. But eventually, he instituted uh, certain, uh, certain laws, uh, such as prohibiting circumcision uh, on pain of death. Uh, if, the, uh, if, if a couple had their child uh, circumcised, so they would kill the child. Uh, the mother would have to walk through the streets with the dead baby hanging from her neck. And then they would kill her and the, and the husband. Uh, if it took place in a village, they killed the people in the village. Um, which is why those people who did do circumcisions usually did it in the uh, in the hills. How do they know it was done? They would they would check. They would uh, they would they would find out. Um, yeah. Uh, So in the year uh, in the year 167, still on your uh, uh, on your timeline, year 167, the Beit Hamikdash itself was uh, was desecrated, uh, but it had been preceded by years of, especially uh, uh, Jason, but even to a greater extent uh, Menelaus, making the Beit Hamikdash more and more like a universal uh, temple. But here, desecrated means uh, that unkosher animals were offered on the uh, uh, on the Mizbeah and uh, and so on and so forth, and that's the beginning. One sixty-seven, 
uh, is the beginning of the persecutions. The actual de uh, desecration of the Beit HaMikdash, uh, as we call it, happened on the 25th day of Kislev in the year 167 BCE. The Karanim didn't, didn't, did they contribute to that? Yeah, yeah, they, 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 were, they were very much in, in favor. Um, okay, uh, things changed, uh, not, not completely. There were Jews who didn't want to go along with this. They were traditional Jews. They were called, at the time, they were called Hasidim, you know, faithful to the tradition. Not all the Hasidim wanted to resist. They just wanted their lives to be left alone. Okay, the Beit HaMikdash, that's, that's lost. But we're going to still conduct our Judaism wherever we may live. Uh, but as the, 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 uh, the process of, of Hellenization uh, is, is progressing, it's moving beyond Jerusalem uh, to the outskirts. And that brings us to uh, the town of Modi'in, uh, where there lives a... Uh, a, a Jewish family, a Kohanim family known as the Hashmonaim. Um, it's very likely that at one time the family was actively involved in the Beit HaMikdash, but they were very traditional. Uh, as we would say, they were, I don't know, Hasidim, Orthodox, Haredi, whatever word you want to use. Uh, in context, Hasidim would be, a, would be an accurate uh, term in historical context. Um, and well, turn over the page. Uh, I have a, a little excerpt here. Uh, from the first book of the Maccabees. Uh, our, our historical sources for the Hanukkah story are many, uh, but uh, the books of the Maccabees, uh, there are four of them, but the first book, uh, Maccabees 1 and Maccabees 2, are the, are the two primary ones. The first book of the Maccabees, by the way, was probably originally written in Hebrew uh, by somebody who was around when those events occurred. Maybe it was written a general, uh, you know, 40 years later, but he may have uh, actually seen it. Uh, but we don't have Maccabees in, uh, in Hebrew. We have it in Greek. Uh, but it's, they say, I, I can't say this on my own, uh, but the, the, the experts say that it's very clear that it's a Greek translation of something that was originally written in Hebrew. That's the, the syntax of it. And it's considered a, it's not part of the Tanakh, because it wasn't written with Ruach HaKodesh, uh, but it is considered a fairly accurate historical source so is Maccabees too, and there are differences. Maccabees too was originally written in Greek. Um, but here's a, an excerpt from the first book of the Maccabees, chapter two, that describes the uprising against, the beginning of the uprising against the Greeks. It's in Modi'in. If you look at the map, you see where Modi'in uh, is. And that's where you have more traditional uh, people, the Hashmonai family, led by Matityahu. Uh, he's the uh, patriarch uh, of the family. And what's happening is that the, the, the Greeks, the Hellenistic Jews, are trying to make uh, Jews outside of Yerushalayim also bring uh, sacrifices uh, to, to the Greek conception. And probably doesn't say what they were asked to sacrifice, but let's see. Here's the, here's the way it's uh, translated. Then the king's officers who were enforcing the apostasy uh, heresy, came to the city of Modi'in to make them offer sacrifice. Many from Israel came to them, and Matityahu and his sons were assembled. Then the king's officers spoke to Matityahu as follows, you are a leader honored and great in the city. In other words, you're a Kohen, and people are going to follow you. And supported by sons and brothers, now be the first to come and do what the king commands. The king has commanded that a Mizbeach be set up in Modi'in, and you bring the sacrifice 
as all the Gentiles and the men of Judah and those that are left in Jerusalem have done. Then you and your sons will be numbered among the friends of the king. That's a legal term. Being a friend of the king could even be uh, mean uh, tax breaks. And you and your sons will be honored with silver and gold and many gifts. Okay, so he, the, he is offered to be the Kohen for this, uh, for this, uh, this Mizbeah, which even if the animal that's offered on it is kosher, and even if the sacrifice is brought to Hashem, is still usher, because when there's a Beit HaMikdash in existence, you can't have uh, what I call, what's called a Bama, a private sac- uh, altar anywhere else. Uh, but it probably wasn't, uh, wasn't uh, kosher Lamahadri. But Matityahu answered and said in a loud voice, even if all the nations that live under the rule of the king obey him and have chosen to do his commandments, departing each one from the religion of his fathers, yet I and my sons and my brothers will live by the covenant of our fathers. Far be it from us to desert the law and the ordinance. We will not obey the king's words by turning aside from our religion to the right hand or to the left. So this is a very noble no. He says, no, he's not going to do it. That wasn't the end of the story. When he had finished speaking these words, a Jew came forward. Now, we don't know who this Jew was. doesn't have a name. We don't know whether he's a Kohen or not. Uh, we don't know what, what motivated him. It's hard to know. Well, a Jew came forward in the sight of all to offer sacrifice upon the altar in Modi'in according to the king's command. So somebody else offered to bring that sacrifice. Instead, when Matityahu saw it, he burned with zeal and his heart was stirred. Well, uh, editorial comment. He gave vent to righteous anger. He ran and killed him upon the altar. I want us to stop and absorb this. The first casualty in the revolt of the Jews against the Greeks was a Jew killed by a fellow Jew because the conflict within the Jewish people was so pronounced. It was already there. And Matityahu was pushed to his limit, and this touched off the revolt. Uh, uh, At the same time, he killed the king's officer, who was forcing them to sacrifice, and he tore down the altar. Thus, he burned with zeal for the law, law, as Pinchas did against Zimri ben Saluk, the president, Pinchas, who was also coming. Then Matityahu cried out in the city with a loud voice, saying, let everyone who is zealous for the law and supports the covenant come out with me. And he and his sons fled to the hills and left all that they had in the city. So he and his sons, um, and you have a, you have a, a, you know, a list of who his various sons are, uh, uh, began this revolt, which at first was not very popular. A lot of people who were Hasidim who just wanted to be left alone. They didn't want to participate. But as time went on, more and more uh, people joined as they had more and more military successes, uh, guerrilla warfare, attacking the Greeks. Yeah. Of. So it's not uh, the story of Yehudit. It's not that clear. The book of Yehudit is also in the uh, one of these books that's not in the Tanakh. Uh, yeah, Yehudit. Um, she's said to kill some uh, a Greek. A Greek general named Nicanor, but there are a lot of people named Nicanor back then, so it's hard to know. Um, it's hard to know whether it was like mo- most likely. It looks like it happened during this revolt, and the revolt wasn't over quickly. It, it took ver- uh, a very long time, but this is what started. Yes. Um, 
I always learned that like Sawyer that he needs Sawyer to undress mm -hmm. in the public. Who? Yeah, that that also happened as well. Uh, the Rambam makes reference to the fact that the Greeks took advantage of of, of all the women uh, as well. But this seems to be the event that touched off the revolt. There may have been other people who, in their own way, uh, uh, resisted uh, the Greeks as well. Yeah. No, it, there may be various various versions of the story. We have Maccabees one is considered pretty pretty reliable. Maccabees two, I think, tells the same story. Josephus also tells the story, but Josephus lived much, much later, uh, so he was relying on other historians in between. Josephus also has, a, has an agenda. He, he wants to downplay the revolt against foreign occupation because Josephus lives under Roman occupation. He wants to downplay that. Yeah. Well, two questions. Uh, is it true or not? Like, what do you mean? Uh, and then the, the other one is, if they had the potential to do that, why did they use it for? You know, like to kill the uh, guy and to spin the war. It's hard, it's hard to know. You know, histo uh, it happens frequently in history that, that like tensions build up and then, uh, and then it's just too much. For anybody to say to uh to take Matityahu who died during the, the that next year was very old. The leadership passed from him to his son Yehuda, uh, who is known also as Maccabee. All of the brothers had like a, a nickname, and Maccabee was Yehuda's nickname. What that means, probably related to the word Makevet, which is a, a hammer. He was like a, the Hebrew hammer. Uh he was uh, like a battle hammer he could attack. Uh yeah. Um one, what was their family name again? Hashmon, Hashmona. Hashmona and yeah, also, What's the Maccabees 2 book then about? It tells the same story. Mm -hmm. It was written probably later. It has some different uh, perspectives. Yeah. How long, how long did it take this revolt? So uh, take a look at the, at the timeline. Um, the uprising that we were just reading about is the year 166. In 165, Yehuda succeeds to the leadership, certain military campaigns. In 164, take a look. In 164, in the spring, was the end of the persecutions and uh, Antiochus Epiphanes uh, granted amnesty. By that point, the, uh, the forces of Yehuda were so successful that they basically negotiated for peace. Uh, and Apifane, Antiochus Epiphanes revoked all of these laws. So they the laws were in effect from the end of 167 until the spring of 164. Um, but that doesn't mean that it was all over. Uh, but at least that part was over. Uh, and once the, those laws were rescinded, uh, the Jews could kind of take a, take a rest. Um, How long was the oil in that situation? Okay, uh, I'm not gonna talk about it. 
because it's not in any source before Megil. I'm going to talk about it. Uh, uh, before, uh, before the Gemara, before uh, Megillah Tani. But let me tell you uh, what what you know what uh, what happened later. Later on in the year 164, right? 164 from the spring they took a break. Yeah, uh, spring break. Uh, and then and then right, exactly, of course. But seriously, the, many of them had to go back to their farms and deal uh, deal, deal with that. But towards the end of the year 164. Yehuda rallies the troops again and he says the Beit HaMikdash is still desecrated. It's still being run according to, uh, to this de desecration. So let's rally our troops. Uh, poetic justice. He purposely reconquered, rede rededicated the Beit HaMikdash on the same day, the 25th of Kislev, that it had been desecrated back in uh, 167. Chose, chose the same day. Uh, and uh, rededicates. Now it's at that point that the, the Gemara, based on a source called Megillat Ta'anit, which is an early uh, work from the, it kind of predates the Mishnah, uh, talks about the discovery of the, uh, uh, of the oil. However, uh, before that source, it's not mentioned anywhere else. It's not mentioned in either books of the Maccabees. Uh, it's, not it's not mentioned by Josephus. Uh, when Josephus talks about the holiday, uh, he says it's called lights, uh, and he he says it has something to do with you know enlightenment or something of that of that nature. Uh, it's not mentioned uh, before. All of the sources that that we're looking at here talk about a military victory, uh, rescinding the the the, uh, the laws, um, and as you look down the 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 timeline, um, you see. Well, that's when Hanukkah start. They they had a dedication process that took eight days. Eight days was the amount of time that they needed to produce new oil, so that, that there could be something, uh, some aspect of that. Uh, the Maccabees does talk about uh, they're not finding an actual menorah because the, the Greeks had taken the gold. So they made, uh, even the Gemara mentions this also, they took spears and they made them into a kind of a, uh, of a menorah. Uh, in the ensuing years, uh, the, law, the, the, the wars continued. The war between the, uh, the, the Jews and the Greeks, first led by uh, Yehuda, and eventually Yehuda dies in battle in the year 160, um, and, the, uh, and the leadership passes from him to, uh, to other brothers. Eventually what happens, we don't have time for, for all the details, but eventually what happens is that uh, partially uh, because the Greeks realize it doesn't pay for them to keep sending troops in there. It's too small a place, it's not worth it. Uh, partially that, partially because the uh, Yehuda uh, had made an agreement with the Romans and the Romans were kind of backing uh, the Hashmonaim uh, or the leaders. The, the Greeks eventually not only uh, like, uh, stopped war, but they allowed the Jews to establish their own autonomous government. Um, none of the Hashmonai brothers ever used the title king, uh, leader, Kohen Gadol, in a number of cases. It's only a few generations later, and you see the, the dynasty uh, of Shimon is the last of the brothers who survived. Uh, and, but look at the names, you know, 
Originally, Matityahu, Yochanan, Shimon, Yehuda, Elazar, Yonatan. Next generation, Matityahu, Yehuda, Yochanan, Hyrkonos. That's a Greek name. Next generation, Yehuda, Aristobulus, Alexander, Yanai, Shlomit, Alexander, an interesting story. And as you go on, this, uh, this dynasty uh, uh, adapted more and more uh, Greek, uh, Greek elements, but uh, it is said by the historians who know uh, much better than I do, and with this I will have to stop and, and take questions, that whereas the Mityavnim tried to alter Torah to conform with Hellenism, what the, the Hasmonean dynasty did was they adopted elements of Hellenism that they could uh, that could work side by side uh, within the within the Torah system, and that included things like democratization of the educational process. More and more people got uh, an education uh, and uh, and the like, uh, and you see that that continued the Hasmonean dynasty. Uh, continued. Eventually, they were supplanted by uh, Herod, uh, and that eventually brings us to the you know, later on to the destruction of the Beit Hamikdash. But uh, we'll stop there. Yeah.